Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're going to start uh, fashion of the on time. Uh, uh, before uh, we uh, invite our distinguished speaker tonight, I want to make a couple of announcements uh, about upcoming events. Uh, this Thursday at 6.30 in Arts, uh, in the Cummings Art Building, Room 2, Arts 2, at 6.30, we have uh, a play that was brought to the United States uh, to be performed at a, a New York festival, uh, a very important New York festival uh, called Under the Radar. And we found out that it was in this country, and we asked them to come and perform it at, at Stanford. So Afshina uh, Hashemi, uh, who's a very well-known Iranian artist and actor, uh, will be performing a play called Hamlet's Grief. Uh, the play will be in Persian. It will have English supertitles. Uh, seating is limited, so it is basically on first come, first third basis. And then uh, on Friday, January 25th, uh, we have Sadr Sabah, the director of uh, the Persian program of the BBC. He will be showing uh, a film that the BBC has made about the life of uh, Mr. Khamenei. It is uh, in Persian with English subtitles. It is a fairly controversial film, and uh, the recent attacks on the BBC, the arrest of their members, in uh, even uh, the families of their uh, employees in Iran, uh, BBC believes is the direct result of that film. Uh, Sadiq uh, Sabah, the director of the program, will be here to answer your questions and talk about uh, life of journalists in the Islamic Republic of Iran. That is uh, on Friday, same room, same building, same time. Uh, yes, we will show the film. He will talk. <laughs> he won't himself show the film. Uh, or he might even, I, I don't know. Uh, but yes, we will have the film first, and it's about, I think, 45 minutes. Uh, and then uh, he will answer questions and talk talk a little bit, and then answer questions. Yeah. The venue is here. Same room, same station, same time, 6.30. Uh, the one that is different is the one on Thursday, which is in Arts to Cummings Art Building. That's the building, that's the room right next to the place where we showed the uh, Iranian taboo, uh, that big hall in Annenberg. Yes. Uh, tonight we are very fortunate uh, to have uh, Professor Shorvay Quinn visit us from UC Merced. Uh, she is uh, one of the world's uh, best uh, experts on a very crucial period of Iranian history, the Savavi era, uh, particularly its historiography. She's written extensively on characters of that era, personalities of that era, uh, dream interpretation in that era, uh, and the historiography of that era, 
and I think she's in the process of preparing uh, a biography of one of the most important characters from Madeira, Shah Abbas, Shah, uh, famous uh, Shah Abbas. Uh, so we are very grateful that she's going to talk about an aspect of her work here that has to do with the historiography of this period, and we are very grateful that she accepted our invitation. Uh, I think she accepted our invitation because uh, uh, Professor Brookshaw pressured her to accept it. So we're thankful to Professor Brookshaw for using his influences to bring her here. Professor Milani for that very kind introduction. It's a real pleasure uh, to be here this evening in front of such a distinguished audience. And um, I have been trying for a long time to get away from the topic of historiography and to move away from texts and chronicles, and it has been impossible. Uh, the reason has to do with the state of Safavid studies. So I'll start going through my paper, and, um, and maybe by the end you'll see why it's always texts and chronicles and historiography. So um, I'm going to be talking about a, a, a treatise um, on Safavid kingship that was produced in the Safavid period. We're talking about the period from 1501 to 1722. This was, as Professor Milani said, an important era in Iran's history. Uh, this was the period in which Shiism was established as the official religion. It was actually imposed as the official religion in a region um, with a minority majority Sunni population um, at the time. This was also a period in which many elements um, of the Shi'i state were developed. Is this, can I put this a little bit further back? Is that, can, can you all still hear me if I, if I do that? Okay, thanks. Um, I, I, I lecture in rooms that are bigger than this without a microphone, so. so um, Safavid studies, so the, the, the field of Safavid studies has enjoyed the discovery, publication, and re-evaluation of many important sources over the last 25 or so years. It's a very exciting field because um, you will find out that a hi historical chronicle that you've never heard about suddenly appears in published form for instance. Um, a few examples include Mir Hashem Mohades's 1982 discovery and publication of the Tariq Kizilbashan, an anonymous history of the Kizilbash. A.H. Morton's 1990 re-evaluation of the Jahan Goshai Khagane Saheb Qiran, and I'll talk about that work a little bit later. Charles Melville's 1998 discovery of Volume 3 of Fazli Esfahani's Afzal al-Tawarikh, and most recently, the exciting discovery by my friend and colleague Shahzad Bashir of a Safavid treatise on the Kizilbash Taj or crown, the Tariq al-Irshad. Another recent example is a text that was published under, under the title of Resale dar Padishahi Safavi. This text dates from the late Safavid period. It's a unique manuscript in the author's own hand, and it is housed now in the Majlis Shoraya Islami Library in Iran. It was edited and published by Rasul. 
Parion and Fereste Kushki in 2009. The author of the work, a certain Mohammed Yusuf Gorji Naji, completed the treatise in the city of Esfahan um, on the 1st of Muharram 1127 or January 18, 1715, during the reign of Shah Sultan Hussein, and his dates are 1694 to 1722. And there's an image of him and some of his coins. We don't know a great deal about the author of this treatise. His name indicates that he was of Georgian background, Gorji. And we do know that he composed another work entitled the Arba'in. And judging from the title Arba'in, this was probably his own collection of 40 hadith that were important to him, but the text hasn't survived, so we don't know anything about its that were important to him, but the text hasn't survived, so we don't know any literature. He was most likely, as Jafarian asserts, one of the alims of Esfahan. The published text comprises some 190 pages, including an index, bibliography, and an extensive introduction by the editors. Naji's narrative is in Persian, but most of his references and citations are in Arabic. Um, something I found out <laughs> after I started um, writing the paper. Uh, the treatise itself focuses on the topic of kingship and it contains a preface and then subject headings on, on the following categories. First, a clarification and confirmation of the phrase sovereignty or mulk is the gift to the prophets. Second, a discussion of how the Israelite prophets were not of one family initially, but at the end they were of one family. Third, the meaning of mulk, sovereignty, and usurped kingship. Fourth, the Abbasid kings and the badness of their circumstances. Fifth, about Shi'i dynasties. Sixth, how a king should behave. Seven, kingship is from God. Eight, an exposition on Esfahan, and nine and ten, two additional notes. So those are the main subject headings in this text. The Resaleh dar Padishahiya Safavi is not really a mirrors for princes text, which is kind of what I was hoping it would be, um, such as the 11th century Kabus Nameh of Kai Kavus, in the sense that it does not primarily consist of practical advice to a living prince, like how often to play chess or backgammon, um, not often, according to Kai Kavus, or what is the best color horse to buy, um, either a bay or a date-colored horse. While one does see some elements of mirrors for princes or advice to the king in the text, um, such as a short section on the attributes of a good king, and interestingly, a diagram of the so-called circle of justice, overall, it most closely resembles narratives, such as the section on kingship that's found in the Anal Hayat of Mohammed Baghir Majlisi, um, whose dates are 1627 to 1698. Jafarian describes the treatise as a proof text, an estedlalia, in defense of the Safavid dynasty. Towards the end of the text, the author himself states that his main purpose in writing was to ascertain whether kingship came from God or somewhere else. 
His brief answer is that some kings come from God, like Shi'i kings and faithful kings, and some are oppressive foes, like the enemy kings, and they are presumably not from God. But an examination of the entire treatise tells, indicates or shows that the author was particularly intent on showing that not only was the Safavid dynasty a legitimate dynasty because their kings came from God, but also that Shah Ismail, that charismatic, charismatic founder of the Safavid dynasty, uh, who ruled from 1501 to 1524, was destined to rule as a prelude or an accompaniment to the appearance of the 12th Imam, uh, the messianic figure known as the Mahdi or the Qa'im. And furthermore, many texts foretold Shah Ismail's appearance. These texts primarily consist of hadith, but in presenting the hadith texts, Naji also cites Quranic passages, a few poems, one excerpt from an early Safavid chronicle, and one piece of diplomatic correspondence. So he's pretty broad. Since the treatise is detailed and contains a great deal of information, today I'd like to focus on one of its sections or chapters, in the one entitled Kingship is from God, in order to first of all outline briefly the references in the text to Shah Ismail, since most of them are in that section, and two, to place that portion of the text in historical and, and historiographical context. So going back to historiography. So let me begin by laying out some of the prophecies about Shah Ismail that Naji presents in his text. The section or chapter, Kingship is from God, Padishahi Bahodast, opens with Naji reasserting the fact that kingship is from God, which he says is clear from the Quranic verse about sovereignty. This is probably a reference to the same verse that Naji quotes in his introduction, 326. Say, O God, possessor of sovereignty, mulk, you give sovereignty to whomsoever you desire, and you take sovereignty away from whomsoever you desire. The point here is presumably that God bestowed kingship on Shah Ismail, and Naji tries to demonstrate this in the rest of this section. The largest number of references to Shah Ismail appear in a cluster of what he calls proofs, mo'yad, all relating to the appearance of a man from the East. Naji's practice is to provide one or two hadith examples in the original Arabic, and then he comments in Persian on the parts of the tradition that he believes refer uh, to Shah Ismail. So let me give you one example of what these sound like. Um, this is the um, hadith that Naji um, cites. The messenger said, quote, we are the people of the house. God chose for us the hereafter, al-akhirah, in preference to this world, adunya. The people of my house will encounter after me calamity, banishment, and exile until a people come by way of the east. With them will be black banners, and they will ask for the good, al-haq, or al-khair, but they will not be given it, so they will kill, and they will be militarily victorious." And they will receive what they asked for, but they will not receive it until they hand it over to a man from the people of my house. 
His name will correspond to my name, and the name of his father is the name of my father. He will rule the earth, and he will fill it with justice and equity, just as it was filled with injustice and tyranny. Naji then, um, after quoting this hadith, states that should anyone claim that perhaps the black banners are an allusion to the Abbasids, which is how the, this hadith has traditionally been understood, they are wrong. He goes on to say that, quote, anyone who has seen or heard the letter of Shah Ismail to Sultan Namurad Akuyunlu knows about seeking the truth and doing good, and that unfortunate one's rejecting it. And even though Shah Ismail said to him, come to my religion, I pledge to you that I will make manifest the religion of truth, Dina Haq, you are a king and I am your general, that wretched one did not give his consent, and what happened was what was destined. Now here, Namurad is a nickname meaning unsuccessful, and it refers to the Akuyunlu Sultan Murad ibn Yaqub, the grandson of Uzun Hassan, whom Shah Ismail defeated in 1503. I haven't been able to locate this letter in any of the collections of Shah Ismail's published correspondence. But here, Naji offers an outspoken, messianically oriented interpretation of the hadith. He links Shah Ismail to the people of the Prophet's house, from whom later will appear that messianic figure who will fill the world with justice. At the same time, he shows familiarity not only with an episode in early Safavid history, but also the contents of Shah Ismail's diplomatic correspondence. Naji also demonstrates familiarity with historical texts when he cites a well-known hadith from Abdi Beg Shirazi's Takmilat al-Akhbar, which he refers to by name. The Takmilat al-Akhbar is a historical chronicle dating back to the reign of Shah Tahmasp that Shirazi dedicated to Shah Tahmasp's daughter, Padi Khan Khanu. So he says that the hadith comes from this chronicle, and this is what the, that hadith says. We have a treasure, Kens. It is not gold and it is not silver, but it is a man amongst my descendants. He will travel to Tabriz with 12,000 horsemen. His head will be bound with a red headband and he will be riding on a gray mule. If you hear of his coming and you are alive during his time, go to him and assist him even if you have to crawl to get there. So that's the, that's the hadith that Naji quotes, and he then states that the red headbands in this hadith are an allusion to the red crowns, the Taj Haya Sorgh, which are a Kizilbash symbol, alamatic Kizilbashi, and that after Hulagu Khan and his descendants, no one amongst the Turks except Shah Ismail, Safavi, Musavi, Bahadur Khan was a prominent Sayyid who entered Tabriz and sat upon the throne of kingship. Naji implies then that Shah Ismail is the treasure mentioned in the hadith. 
Now, interestingly, this treasure's motif itself has a long history that stretches in two directions, way back before the Safavid period and forward into the Qajar era. Sean Anthony recently published an article on the early history of this particular hadith, in which he explains that the treasure or treasures, which are sometimes referred to in other hadith and sources as the treasures of Taligon, so that's that's the version um, of the hadith that, that's most cited, that the treasures of Taligon were popularly thought to be righteous men destined to join and fight alongside the Mahdi's army. But Anthony notes that the treasures motif prevails in Zoroastrian millenarian expectations of a future apocalyptic personality who will uncover a hidden treasure in regions of Rai and Tabaristan and use it to raise a mighty army to save Iran Shah from its mortal enemies. So that, that's the very early Zoroastrian um, background to that hadith. But this hadith was still of some importance even in the 19th century, um, as Sayyid Muhammad Ali Shirazi, the messianic claimant known as the Bab, was asked by a follower of his about the figure who would appear from Khorasan and Taligan. And the Bab gave a diplomatic answer when he said, oh my God, you indeed teach me that I know nothing except what you teach me, for with you is the knowledge of everything in the book. So that was the... 19th century um, response to what that hadith meant. Naji then goes on to cite several more hadith, each of which he associates with Shah Ismail in some way. In the first, he relates a tradition predicting the appearance of a star with a tail or a comet from the east that would accompany the appearance of a bright and shining moon. He glosses the moon as being the sahib zaman the lord of the age, which means the messianic figure, but he says that the star represents Shah Ismail and the star's tail, Shah Ismail's descendants. So that's, that's I'm, I'm laying out all, all of the evidence here. Naji next comments on two hadith together. The first re relates to the region of Daylam, the Gilan region. Here Naji states on the authority of Sheikh Tusi's treatise on the occultation al-Ghayba that a youth will emerge from Daylam and he will fill the mountains and valleys and rocky grounds with fear, desire, and awe. And the people will rush to obey him both the moral ones and the sinful ones. The second states, quote, verily God will indeed assist this religion through men who are sinful. Now, regarding both of these hadith, Naji says, quote, thus most of the helpers of this dynasty, he's referring to the Safavids, are Sunnis and ignorant people. It is therefore clear that they are all sinful, except for themselves. And here he means, I think, the dynastic members. So everyone is simple, sinful, except for the members of the Safavid dynasty, some of the elite, the Khas, and the divines of the religion, Ulamayadin, which he was presumably one of. As for the phrase, assist this religion, he states, it is clear to those possessed of insight and the lords of discernment and outward religiosity that after the Turks, this good fortune was not attained by anyone other than Shah Ismail. May God the Exalted illumine his resting place and 
and his high-ranking descendants, may God hold them eternal until this state is united with the state Dolat of the Ga'em through Muhammad and his glorious family. May God's blessings be upon them both. According to Naji, Shah Ismail also fulfilled traditions that relate to the city of Ghazvin, which was the capital under Shah Tahmas. In his interpretation of a hadith about the emergence of a man from Ghazvin, whose name is the name of the prophet Ismail, the prophet who is Shah Ismail's distinguished ancestor and whom people will rush to obey and infidels and believers will fill the mountains with fear, Naji states that the man is Shah Ismail and his great descendants and his successors, his valiyan, because infidels and believers together obeyed him and assisted the religion. I'll give the last hadith example and then I'll move on to some of the other kinds of sources that Naji cites. Um, another short prophecy which Naji says comes from the Sir al-Azam um, of Muhammad ibn Talha Shafi'i states that, quote, Ibn Abbas said that between the corner, the Rukh of the Kaaba, and the station, the Maqam of Abraham, this would be in Mecca, they will pledge allegiance to the Mahdi, and his companions will be the number of the people of Bad, that would be 313, and among the signs of the appearance of the Mahdi will be a man emerging from the city of Ghazvin, and his name will be the name of one of the prophets. Now here, while Naji does not state it explicitly, the implication is that that man uh, is Shah Ismail, the man from the city of Ghazvin, because that individual was earlier glossed as Shah Ismail in a similar tradition about someone appearing from Ghazvin whose name was the same as one of the prophets. Finally, although it does not appear in the same kingship is from God chapter, Shah Ismail's name also comes up in a basida or an ode in the section of the book devoted to Esfahan. Naji states that he got the poem from a friend of his, and, it, and he also states that it comes from the divan of Shah Nematullah Vali, the founder of the Nematullahiya Sufi order. The poem mentions the future rule of not just Shah Ismail, but, now, but also Shah Tahmas, Shah Abbas, and Shah Suleiman by name, and imagines a future in which Safavid monarchs well beyond Shah Sultan Hussein's reign would be in power. Now here the key point to keep in mind is that Shah Nematullah's death date is 1430, 1431. So let me just quote you a couple of lines from this poem. Quote, after that, a ruler, Sarvad, will appear from the family of Yas. This is a reference to Yasin, the, the family of Muhammad. The religion and the state will get fame from his name and his identity. Okay, this, this ruler. Shah Ismail Haydad will be that king. Shah Ismail Haydad Bovad on Shahriyar. The world will make mascara from the dust of his feet. After he rules, his son will rule for 50 years. Ta and Ha 
and mosque will bear the signs of his name. Badazu shahi konad farzande u panjasal ta vaha va mosque as namesh neshan khahad gereft. Lines like these are hardly the epitome of Persian poetic nuance and subtlety. And indeed, it comes as no surprise that the editor of Naji's treatise could not find this poem in any of the published editions of Shanematullah's Divan. Indeed, in his Encyclopedia of Islam entry on the Nematullahis, um, Hamid Algar uh, states the quote, the most frequently cited poems in his Divan are those of prophetic or apocalyptic nature, which have been interpreted as foretelling events as diverse as the rise of the Safavids, the separation of Bangladesh from Pakistan, and the Islamic Revolution in Iran of 1978-9. These verses, the authenticity of at least some of which is open to question, have tended to make of Shah Nematullah the Persian equivalent of Nostradamus. So, um, but, but that poem appears in this um, treatise. So in all of the examples that I've provided here, Naji never equates Shah Ismail with the Mahdi. That is, he never cites hadith regarding the Mahdi, he never cites hadith regarding the Mahdi and follows with a statement saying that Shah Ismail is the Mahdi or that messianic figure. Rather, Shah Ismail appears in these examples as the fulfillment of a symbol such as the treasure or the comet or an individual such as the man from Ghazwin or Tabriz that will accompany the appearance of a messianic figure or somehow render him assistance. For Naji, Shah Ismail is a kind of a precursor to the Mahdi. Furthermore, as several of the examples I've enumerated here refer not only to Shah Ismail, but also to his descendants, Naji makes an argument for the survival of the entire Safavid dynasty on the basis of their collectively heralding the coming of the Mahdi. So th th this raises many questions. I had never seen a text this late with these kinds of references to Shah Ismail. And I, I was very, very curious um, as to what was going on here. Um, first of all, uh, why would he write such a treatise that essentially defends Safavid kingship at this point in time? After all, the Safavids had been around for over 200 years at his time of writing. And secondly, and more intriguingly, I think, why would he place so much emphasis Emphasis on Shah Ismail. I believe that both historical and historiographical context can help us answer these questions. So let me start first with historical context. In terms of historical context, Shah Sultan Hussein and his dates of rule 1694 to 1722 had been on the throne some eight years when Naji wrote his treatise. The Safavid dynasty by this time had undergone significant transformation since, since it was established in 1501. As Rudy Mati has outlined in his book on the late Safavid period, Persia in Crisis, the Safavid center of power had shifted to the palace harem, where Shah Sultan Hussein spent most of his time. This monarch had a reputation for gullibility and demanding gifts from officials on a monthly basis. High offices were sold to the highest bidder and the Grand Vizier wielded great power. 
In terms of social and economic conditions, clerics, eunuchs, and women stepped into the power vacuum that was caused by a weak monarch. These were among the same groups that Shah Abbas the Great had variously cultivated, promoted, and supervised in order to establish a fragile balance of power a century earlier. Clerics in particular assumed greater authority and began to issue prohibitions on certain activities deemed un-Islamic. At least some of them continued to enjoy royal support, and Shah Sultan Hussein consulted important and powerful religious figures like Mohammed Bagher Majlisi and Mir Mohammed Bagher Khatun Abadi, holding them in high esteem. At the same time, eunuchs made political appointments and approved of promotions and demotions, while women of the royal family actively participated in succession politics. So given this general context, given the general conditions that I've outlined, Naji would not have had reason to criticize the monarchy in relation to his own position. After all, clerics were doing very well at this time. Rather, like Majlisi, with whom he might even have studied, he chose to defend and promote the notion of Safavid kingship at a time when the monarchy was weak. In doing so, however, Naji invokes an earlier period in Safavid history in order to make an argument for the importance and survival of the entire Safavid line. Furthermore, enough time had passed to allow the possibility of looking back and reimagining a dynastic founder who fulfilled certain religious prophecies that members of the religious establishment, such as Majlisi, were gathering and promoting. So that's very briefly the historical context. Now let me go into the historiographical context, which I think answers a, a little bit more of the questions about this text. Historia the 17th century historiographical context. Historiographical context further helps us understand Naji's emphasis on Shah Ismail. For Shah Ismail in particular, and the early Safavid in per period in general, um, both figure very prominently in several historiographical strands of the 17th century, especially in texts that were produced during the reign of Shah Suleiman, and there he is, um, dates um, 1666 to 1694. In a list that art historian Barry Wood provides of the 13 historical texts, produced during the reign of Shah Suleiman, seven relate in one way or another to Shah Ismail, and two more are genealogical works, which include information on the early Safavids, including Shah Ismail. And if we look beyond historical narratives to include sources such as the manuscript Shahzad Bashir discovered and copies of the Divan of Shah Ismail, the list gets even longer. So let me turn to some of these works. Shah Suleiman's reign witnessed the composition of numerous so-called Shah Ismail romances. That's sort of how they're referred to in the secondary scholarship. These are prose texts, and they appear under a number of titles, including the Alamaraya Shah Ismail, the Alamaraya Safavi, the Tarikh Jahan Araya Shah Ismail Bahadur Khan. These three are all versions of the same text. The text is a 
Anonymous, um, and and then another one called the Jahan Goshaiya Khagan Sahib Qiran. Um, these date to the 1675-76 for those three that are three different titles of the same text, and the 1680s for the last one that I mentioned. Scholars from fields including history, art history, and literature have begun to establish the relationship between these texts, and this is a complex task that is still in need of further research. Um, regarding the Alamaraya Shah Ismail, Robert McChesney suggests that it is rooted in a popular, probably oral tradition of historical narrative, and that the author compiler of the Alamaraya Shah Ismail produced a book that describes the mythic, legendary, and ideological qualities of the Safavid exemplar, that is Shah Ismail, rather than an objective sequence of actual events. He also states that, quote, contained within its numerous anecdotes and vignettes of Shah Ismail and his age are important clues to popular religious and political lore, as well as to the significance of Ismail as an ideological archetype. Um, a few scholars have offered some explanation as to why these histories of Shah Ismail were produced at this late period. Wood suggests that the overall emphasis on the early Safavid period was a result of Shah Suleiman's personal interest in the early Safavids. In other words, he liked the early Safavids, so he commissioned all of these accounts of Shah Ismail. Um, because he was the one who commissioned at least one version of the Alamaraya Ismail and other histories among those 13 on that list. The late great scholar of, of Iran, A.H. Morton, provides a more specific context in his brilliant analysis of the third of the titles I mentioned above, the Jahan Goshayir Khagan Sahib Geran. In this study, Morton not only establishes the title and author of the manuscript until he publishes article, it was simply known as the Ross Anonymous because Denison Ross wrote an article about it um, years, years ago. He also establishes the late date of composition for this text, which was long considered the earliest source for Safavid history. So this is a text that was used by scholars and it was assumed to be the earliest source for Safavid history. Um, Professor Morton dated it to, um, to the late um, 17th century. And he also figured out who the author of the work was, a certain Bijan, who was known as the Tarihist that was his title, the reciter of Safavid history, who wrote for an audience of ghulams, as his patron was a certain Agha Muhammad Reza Beg. And this Agha Muhammad Reza Beg, who may have been a court eunuch, um, uh, sort of forced him to uh, rather reluctantly incorporate material from these anonymous Shah Ismail texts into his narrative in order, Morton suggests, to educate Ghulam audiences about early Safavid history. Now, these texts are very interesting. Um, they, th at least two copies of Bijan's history and several of the other Shah Ismail romances were illustrated. 
And um, it has also been suggested, and I agree with this suggestion, that they were meant to be read out loud. And that means that these histories achieved some prominence or popularity, and their subject matter, if not their specific contents, would have been familiar to late 17th and early 18th century audiences. Um, I'll digress for a moment to say that some recent scholarship has addressed the issue of the illustrations in these texts, and these are just some of the illustrations from one version of the anonymous um, Shah Ismail history from the British uh, Library. Noting the overall lack of illustration in Safavid historical works, you don't see Safavid chronicles being illustrated very often. Uh, Wood states the following um, about a 1683 manuscript of the Alam Arayi Shah Ismail in the Chester Beatty Library, and this is the one that he's talking about. 18 illustrations adorn the manuscript, whose most, most significant aspect may be the fact that they were executed at all. So why are these late anonymous Shah Ismail uh, romances illustrated? Charles Melville suggests that a similarity in style between the Ismail romances and Ferdowsi's Shahnameh, along with the fact that the Shahnameh was the illustrated history par excellence, explains the miniatures that accompany these late Safavid texts. He also notes that the heroic personality of figures like Shah Ismail um, lent themselves to illustration better than other Safavid kings like Shah Abbas. Um, I think this is open to further discussion. Whatever the reason for this phenomenon, my point here is that these texts were not simply one-off copies to be stored away and ignored. They had some, they, they, they had some prominence. Um, turning to another genre emphasizing the early Safavid period, the most well-known of the genealogical texts mentioned that I've mentioned is the Silsilatul Nasabis Safaviyyeh, and this also looks back to the more distant Safavid past. This is basically a historical genealogical work that focuses on Sheikh um, Zahed, who was the spiritual teacher to Sheikh Safiyyadin, who was the eponymous founder of the Safaviyya Sufi order from the 14th century. And it was, of course, this Sufi order that gave birth to the Safavid dynasty in 1501 with Shah Ismail. Now, most elements in, in this genealogical work highlight the life of Sheikh Safiyyadin, but the text also contains four poems from the Divan of Shah Ismail. So Shah Ismail even figures in that early Safavid genealogical work. Um, in addition to, and, and in addition to the small number of Shah Ismail's poems reproduced in the Silsilatul Nasab, um, research by Feren Shirkes, a graduate student at the University of Chicago, has noted that the entire divan of Shah Ismail's poetry was copied by one Nuradin Mohammed ibn Abu Torab Esfahani in 1677, and the calligrapher was from a well-known family um, of calligraphers. 
Chirkes suggests that the context of its production might not be unrelated to the Safavids' interest in the late 17th century in the legendary history of the dynasty as attested by popular romantic narratives such as the various versions of the Alamaraya Shah Ismail. So these texts are, are at, the, at the center of the 17th late 17th century historiographical tradition. If we examine the international Persianate historiographical scene, rather than limit ourselves to the borders of, Saf of the Safavid Empire, um, things get even more interesting. Because there we find a parallel phenomenon. At the same time that we see the proliferation of the anonymous Ismail romances in Safavid Iran, Central Asia witnessed the spread of a number of epic-style legendary accounts of Timur or Tamar. Much like the Shah Ismail texts. These were composed in the 1710s, around the same time that Naji composed his treatise. The Timur legends beg comparison with the Shah Ismail romances, and that's a project well beyond the scope of this study. It would make a great dissertation, I think. But they provide evidence for a more regional phenomenon of looking back in time to tell stories of past heroic kings. Rounding out our late 17th century tour of historiographical context and striking closer to Naji's intellectual home, it should be noted that Naji was not the only writer who stated that Shah Ismail fulfilled certain hadith. As Catherine Babayan has pointed out, Mohammed Bagher Majlisi, author of the famous Bihar al-Anvar, a massive encyclopedia of the Shi'i universe of discourse, interpreted Shah Ismail's advent as a sign of the coming of the Lord of the Age, rather than the advent of the Mahdi himself. The hadith connected to Babayan's analysis states that the appearance of the Mahdi will be preceded by the appearance of a conqueror from Khorasan and a Sayyid from Gilan, and the ram would slaughter his child. So that's the hadith. Majlisi, in his interpretation of this hadith, states that the conqueror, the one from Khorasan, refers either to Changiz Khan or Hulagu Khan, the Sayyid from Gilan was Shah Ismail, and the Ram was Shah Abbas because he killed his son, Safi Mirza. This hadith, however, is one of only two that mentions Shah Ismail in Majlisi's Bihardal and Var volumes related to the Qa'em. This is volumes 51 to 53 of the new edition, volume 13 of the old edition. Writing some 21 years after Majlisi completed the Bahar al-Anvar in approximately 1694, Naji continues in this very same tradition, only he carries the tendency much further in his repeated references to Shah Ismail in such a short treatise. So now the conclusion. What then are we to make of Naji's treatise, given the historical and historiographical context provided here? First, if you read through the secondary scholarship of some of the um, historical works that I've mentioned, we often see words such as alternative and heterodox and phrases like altered and excuse me, altered and distorted in discussions of many of these late Safavid sources, except of course the Bihar al-Anvar. If we examine them all together, 
what might appear to have been on the historiographical margins shifts more to the center. Collectively, they point to, if not a revival, then certainly a renewed interest in Shah Ismail that started in the 17th century during the reign of Shah Suleiman and continued into the 18th century. But why did Naji, who was not a genealogist or a storyteller, emphasize Shah Ismail? It was not, I don't think, simply nostalgia for the past. Um, the focus on Shah Ismail in such a broad range of texts suggests something more at play than merely wanting to look back to the good old days, much in the same way that Mohammed Reza Pahlavi's celebration of 2,500 years of kingship in pre-Islamic Persepolis was not an exercise in mere nostalgia, but had political and legitimizing purposes, as my colleague Abbas Milani has written in his recent biography, The Shah. Rather, the historical context that I have described with a weak monarch and an empowered clergy certainly suggests that the clerical class would have had a vested interest in keeping the Safavid house in power. Naji, as a cleric and alem, wrote from a clerical perspective, so the types of evidence and proof texts that he puts forward are, not surprisingly, primarily prophetic hadith. So if historical context explains the use of prophetic hadith in the desire to defend and promote the Safavid house, the emphasis on Shah Ismail is, I believe, due to the historiographical context. Shah Ismail figured prominently in texts of the decades immediately prior to Naji's writing, so the 17th century texts themselves created the historiographical locus that fed into the 18th century. After all, and this is Shah Ismail going after a bear in one of those anonymous romance uh, histories. After all, Naji mentions Shah Ismail's letter to Sultan Namurad, that Akuyun leader, an episode which received considerable attention in the Ismail romances. Furthermore, Naji, with his Georgian background, may have moved in circles that were especially likely to have heard Bijan's Tariqa Jahan Goshaiya Khagan Sahib Kedan. Thus, the Shah Ismail romances, the genealogical works, copies of Shah Ismail's poetry had already primed readers and audiences for Naji's bold assertions. Naji therefore tapped into a trend already in place, but he manipulated that trend for